Would you take your Bibles and turn into the New Testament? If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to take the one in the pew rack in front of you and turn to the New Testament section of your Bible to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. Undoubtedly, as you turn there and begin to read at verse 16, you'll notice that this is a section of Scripture that if you've been um, among the family of God any length of time, that you will be undoubtedly familiar with. I've preached on uh, this passage a number of times in my years of ministry here, but feel prompted by the Spirit to come back to a particular section of this today and and really bring a word that has been laid heavily on my heart uh, concerning our life in Christ. So if you have your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, Paul says, So I say, Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Would you pause and have a word of prayer with me? Lord, this morning, with open Bibles and open hearts, we come to you and we pray together that Your Word would be our rule, that Your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that, Lord, we give You permission this morning to reach into the depths of our lives and point out anything in us that is not honoring to the name of Christ. Speak to my heart and to each one in this room, and have, as we've just sung, Have your way in us, O God. May my words be just more than human opinion. Pour through me the gift of preaching, that you would take these words and apply them to our lives, and that we would respond with a word of yes and obedience, and walk in step with your Spirit. Help us to live by the Spirit, and to not gratify the desires and the appetites of our flesh. But may you govern all that we are. 
This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 22 and 23, Paul gives us this this list of fruit. They are a package. They are not fruits, but it is the fruit of the Spirit. And these fruit come in our life in Christ. And he says that when you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit who comes in and gives witness to your spirit that you are a child of God, begins to bring a fruit bearing into your life, such that your life begins to look like the life of Jesus. Your, your model, your example is Jesus, so that your life begins to be characterized by things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Paul says, whereas once before you came to Christ, you were gratifying the desires of your flesh and you were engaged in sinful acts like immorality and impurity and idolatry and hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage and all the rest. Now your life is being transformed and you're being changed by the Spirit of God and you are to become more like Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life. That with Jesus as our exemplar, we begin to come under the influence of the Holy Spirit and He begins to shape and fashion and mold and purify and make us more like Jesus. And that these fruit that are listed here in verses 22 and 23 become characteristic of our life in Christ. Now, I want to focus on the very last one of those fruit that are mentioned there, the one of self-control. And I'm wondering this morning, as we think about self-control, what it actually means for you in your life. Perhaps self-control in your life means pushing away from the table to say no to, to avoid that second piece of pie. Possibly self-control for you means resisting the enticement of television advertising that woos you, tempts you to buy a new car when you can't afford it. Perhaps self-control for you means resisting a second look at an attractive person of the opposite sex, and you stop that temptation to lust after another human being. It seems to me that self-control means different things to different people. For you, it may be the appetite, uh, the actual physical appetite that drives you to eat more and more. And you just don't have control over your eating or your spending or your thought life or your speech. Self-control means different things to different people. Self-control was a virtue that Bob Cannell did not possess. Mr. Cannell was my world history teacher when I was a sophomore in high school at Portville Central School in the southern tier of New York State. Mr. Canal's reputation had preceded him. Bob not only taught world history, but he also coached the high school football team, the Portville Panthers. Uh, Bob was a, a big, burly fellow. I want you to get a picture of him in mind. He was a 5'8" and I would guess probably about 300 pounds. And he seemed to me, as a sophomore, a little scrawny kid, to be as wide as he was tall. He was kind of like a ball. 
And he was so heavy that when he walked down the aisles between our, our school desks, that the wooden boards in the floors of room 202 would actually creak as he walked. Bob was, how shall we say, an intense individual. He ran his classroom like a military sergeant. Mr. Canal had incredibly fair skin. So that when he laughed heartily or when he got angry, his face would turn a bright cherry red. I sat in a desk in the second row in room 202 between Bradley Craddock and Paula Cuddy. Mr. Canal had arranged us alphabetically. Crocker fell between Craddock and Cuddy. I liked my seat assignment because I could hide there. When I was in world history, I was able to keep my head low, and I had determined what my M.O. in that class would be, that I would say nothing unless asked, and I would do nothing except when invited to. I would keep my head down, and I would take notes. And I did that as faithfully as I could. But there was another bright, I suppose, maybe unbright fellow in that class. I can't remember who he was because high school was so long ago. There was a fellow student of mine who didn't play it my way, but instead relished in crossing the line of the boundaries that Mr. Canal had set for our high school classroom. And he would do it, in my opinion, a little too often, and it was very risky behavior. And every time that this young fellow student would do that, I would, I would virtually squirm in my seat because I was afraid of what Mr. Canal might do. One day, this student pushed too far. My eyes were glued on Mr. Canal. I was wondering what he was going to do with this one. And I could see the redness. The teachers wore ties in those days. I could see the redness beginning to emanate from the, the uh, neck of his shirt. And it began to migrate up his face to his chin, to his upper lip, to his nose, to his forehead, until his head looked like a huge red raspberry. And he walked over to that student And without any warning, he grabbed him by the ear and he pulled him out of his desk and he actually yanked him by the ear out into the hallway. And I virtually became sick as I listened to Mr. Canal shoving that boy against the metal lockers in the hallway and yelling at him at the top of his lungs. Bob Canal did not have self-control when it came to his short fuse. But it seems to me that some of us struggle with self-control as well. It may not be that we have a short fuse, but it may be that we're struggling with some area in our life where there is little or no control. 
Let's face it, none of us is totally consistent when it comes to the fruit of self-control. I think we'd all have to admit that at some point or another, we've all lost it. We are, as this sermon is titled, out of control. It doesn't come naturally to us to be in control. It's not easy. It takes a lot of work, a lot of energy, and a lot of practice. But every one of us has experienced when, when the sense of stability and control it just kind of goes crazy. Where unchecked emotions quickly erupt into shouting matches. Or unchecked spending results in being drowned in debt. Or unchecked sexuality results in being smothered by a blanket of guilt and shame. Or unchecked schedules leave marriages and families broken. Or unchecked dietary disciplines result in an unending string of frustration and poor health for many people. We all struggle. That is why I think that it should be a relief for us to hear good news from the Scripture this morning that reminds us that the Holy Spirit is here and active in your life. If you're a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit is here to offer you the fruit of self-control. And the Holy Spirit will help you in bearing this fruit of self-control you Control. It will be as natural to you as an apple tree bearing apples in the autumn for the Holy Spirit to bear this fruit of self-control in your life. It's part of our life in Christ and Christ dwelling in us. What do the Scriptures mean when they speak of self-control? What does it mean to be a temperate person? Is it attainable? Is it possible? Can it be cultivated or is it just the product of some wistful thinking? Before I answer those questions, I'd like to make something very, very clear to you this morning. And that is this, that self-control is not some method of severe self-discipline where you buck up and pull yourselves up by the bootstraps where you can, by your conduct, you just grin and bear it and you grit your teeth to be controlled. I know for a lot of Christians, that's what it means. But self-control for the Christian means that myself, my body, my whole being, my person, comes under the influence and the control of the Holy Spirit. Such that my mind and my heart, my hands, my feet, my thoughts, my lips are governed by God. That He controls me. Every part of me comes under the sovereign control of His Holy Spirit. So that when we are earnest about this, that you and I are men and women who live under authority. We live under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So that our attitudes and actions and our affairs are turned over to a gracious God, and we live in this place of control with the Spirit controlling us. 
So self-control is not so much a matter of self-discipline and self-effort as it is one of giving ourselves over to the control of the Holy Spirit. I want to just move from preaching to meddling for a moment. It disturbs me very, very much about the double-mindedness of some Christians who on Sunday can can sing praises to God and participate in a Bible discussion in a community life group, can, can sing in the choir, lead a small group, or whatever. We, put on, we go through the motions. We put on a good act. But when we leave these doors, we give in to the old appetites of that natural person. And we live like we did before we were redeemed. I can't believe, frankly, I can't believe the speech that comes out of some supposed Christian mouths. The words that are spoken in anger at one another. The swearing, the taking of Christ's name in vain. Over and over and over again, I hear this. And it is not my place to judge, but I am a fruit inspector. And I recognize that there are some people who instead of having the fruit of the Spirit being born in their life, instead have the fruit of the worldly flesh being born in their life. And they are more like what Paul talks about. This is not what you're supposed to do. The sinful nature, which is obvious, immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's not what we're supposed to be like when we're in Christ. Because when we're in Christ, we're giving our life over to God. And we're asking Him to take control. How do we do this? I think it can be best summed up in three words. The words are these. Admit, surrender, and abide. Admit, surrender, and abide. The first word, admit. That if we are truly to be bearing fruit in our life, the first thing that we must do is admit our helplessness. We must admit the fact that we can do nothing apart from the indwelling strength of the Holy Spirit who is within us as a believer. Now, I know, I know that it's easier said than done. Yet the truth is that this Spirit-filled life that we're talking about this morning, this road to a fruitful life, begins with an admission of absolute helplessness. Even 12-step recovery programs that assist people who are struggling with addictions understand the importance of this principle. Programs like Alcoholics Anonymous begin with this foundational affirmation. They say that we admit that we are powerless over you fill in the blank and that our lives have become unmanageable. What is that? That affirmation used by 12-step recovery programs is nothing less than pure and simple admitting our helplessness. When you and I come to the point where we acknowledge to God and admit to God that we are helpless and hopeless apart from His Holy Spirit, 
I think it is then that we take the first step on the road to experiencing this fruitful life that Paul describes here in verses 22 and 23. But let's face it, that goes against our natural bent. Because when left to ourselves and our own devices, we tend to try to do things for God out of our own strength so that we minister out of our own strength, or we counsel, or we parent. We live independent of the Holy Spirit. And if you and I try to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit through self-effort, eventually, if we stay on that track, eventually we'll be frustrated. We'll experience no peace or joy if we do it through self-effort. There will be no fruit in your life. Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, uses a great analogy that helps clarify what I'm trying to explain to you about the ineffectiveness of self-effort. Bill Hybels says, suppose that you had a big colored beach ball and you were standing on the side of the pool and someone instructed you to jump in and to submerge the beach ball and keep it under the water's surface for eight hours. And you accepted that challenge. You tried to do it. And so you jumped in the pool and you tried to submerge the beach ball and you're holding it down. But the force of the water causes the the beach ball to pop up to the surface. And in frustration, you try to push it down again and hold it down for a little longer. But once again, the powers at work there cause the beach ball to, to come up to the surface again. Heibel says there's a better way to solve this problem. You should deflate the ball. Let the air out. It's much easier to manage that way. Friends, I want to say to you that in our own strength, we are not sufficient. We are not able to keep it under control. If you're counting on your own natural ability to stay under control, you will fail. So instead of trying to overpower whatever it is that's getting you, instead of trying to overpower it, you simply need to admit your helplessness. And you need to take the life out of it by giving it over to God. Surrender, I think, is the second step on this path toward fruitful lives. We will never experience the Spirit-controlled life until we give up. Give up. Once we come to the point where we're willing to admit our helplessness to God, we then we need to then turn and surrender our will to God. What does it mean to surrender? It means giving up my rights. It means exchanging my will for God's will. It means putting up my hands and saying to God, I'm yours, God. Take control of me. And it's at this point of surrender. You admit your helplessness to God. And then you surrender your will to God. And it's at this point of surrender that I think you begin to experience the the joy and enjoy the quality of life that Paul is talking about here in Galatians 5. So that your life begins to take on the flavor of Christ. And you begin to experience more love and more joy, and more peace, and more patience, and goodness, and kindness, and faithfulness, 
gentleness, and the particular fruit we're talking about this morning, self-control. But you will not experience those things until you give up, until you surrender. One of the first lessons they, they teach in water safety is that you are never to swim out to a drowning woman or man who is thrashing around in the waters. To do so would be to commit suicide. What will happen if you do that? She will drag you down under the water's surface and in the process of trying to save her, she will drown you too. The correct procedure, according to water safety experts, is to stay just far enough away from the struggling person that he or she is not able to grab you by the arm And when they are finally ready to almost give up, they're going down for the count, you, as the rescuer, should make your move. Why should you do it at that point? Because at that point, the struggling individual will not work against you. They have given up, and they will allow you to save them. I believe that the same holds true in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. That until we give up, until we surrender, we aren't even in a position to be helped. Some of us aren't there yet. We haven't given up. We haven't experienced enough pain. We think we can do it through our own strength. The bottom hasn't fallen out. And we've not surrendered. We've not given up yet. Surrender involves a change of the heart. It's an inner thing, an interior thing. A change of the heart that changes the shape of our lives and our behavior. You see, friends, you can go through all the motions. You can try to say the right words. You can do, try to do externally the right things. You can attend church, you can read the Bible, you can pray, you can memorize Scripture, you can do all the religious stuff until it comes out your kazoos. But your heart, if it's not been changed, if your heart is far from God, there will be no change. There needs to be a heart change. We must admit our helplessness and surrender ourselves to God. And yet some of us keep on going, thinking, well, I can, I can certainly manage this on my own. If I just try a little harder, if I just do a little more, if I just join another Bible study, if I just memorize some Scripture, certainly, certainly, certainly I can get control of that. But until you surrender yourself to God and say, God, I'm absolutely helpless over this. I need you. I need you, God. We will never experience this peace and joy and self-control. So we must admit our helplessness. We must surrender our will. And then we, third and finally, must abide in Christ. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15 for a moment. John 15. And in John 15... Jesus is speaking here to his disciples using the metaphor of the vine dresser, the vine and the branches, the vine dresser. 
And in chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, the KJV says, abide in me. Remain in me and I will remain in you. I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Will you read the last clause aloud together with me there? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. There are two things I want to draw out of this passage that I think are important for our consideration this morning. First of all is this, that Jesus expects his followers, that is you and me, to bear fruit. This is his expectation, that we would be fruit bearing. And that this fruit would be love and joy and peace and so on. And notice that Jesus doesn't say that as one of my followers, you're going to produce fruit. You're going to manufacture it. You're going to stir it up. He doesn't say that. He says you're going to bear fruit. You see, there's a a very real difference between manufacturing it through your own self-effort and simply bearing it because of the work of another. We are to bear it. And we're not to bear just some fruit, but Jesus says that we will bear much fruit. The second thing that, that's clear from these verses is that what Jesus is calling us as his followers to do is absolutely impossible. It's not just difficult. It is absolutely impossible to do it. You cannot bear fruit, Jesus says, apart from him. So your self-effort is, is absolutely wasted activity and energy. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, friend, if you're trying to live your life for Christ, apart from Jesus, on your own, through your own self-effort, you are actually attempting something that is absolutely impossible. If you're trying to have a marriage that is characterized by love and joy and peace, and you're trying to establish love, joy, and peace in that marriage, apart from Christ, Jesus says, it's impossible. If you're trying to stir up patience from deep within yourself or develop some measure of self-control apart from Christ, you are guaranteed to fail. Why? Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Then how does it work? Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, so that when we abide in Christ and He abides in us, we have the potential to bear a consistent harvest of spiritual fruit. And the fruit that will be born in the life of this person who abides in Christ will look like love and will look like peace and will look like joy and will look like kindness and will look like goodness. He gives it. He produces it in us. It's not our production It's His production in us. What is our part? Our part is to remain in the vine. 
as a branch, our job, our duty is to stay connected to the vine. So the aim of this passage is fruit for God's glory. And the path to that fruit bearing is simply to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ and allow Him to abide in us. What's our part? To simply abide. So then, what does it mean to abide in Christ? J.C. Ryle said this, that when we abide in Christ, we are to cling to Him, stick fast to Him, live the life of close and intimate communion with Him, get nearer and nearer to Christ, to roll every burden on Him, to cast our whole weight on Him, and never let go of Him for a moment. That's what it means to abide. And so as we are clinging to Christ, we are pursuing Him and following hard after Him, He is clinging to us. Last night I happened to turn on Charles Stanley and listen to him preach. It was feeding my soul and encouraging. And one of the things that I caught as I kind of in and out and dozing there on a late Saturday evening was the this wonderful illustration. Stanley said, You know, we often think about the hand of God and us reaching up and grasping Him and holding on to His hand. But the problem is, when we we hold on to God that way, it's easy to lose our grip. But we need to stop thinking that way because when God gets a hold of us, He grabs us by the hand and He holds us like that. And there's no way. Scripture says, no one Nothing shall pluck you out of the hand of God. He's got a hold of you. He's abiding in you. The Holy Spirit is living in you. And in the same way that He is clinging to us, we should be clinging to Him. Let me ask you this morning, are you clinging to Christ today? Or are you living so close to the world with all of its fleshly appetites? You've gotten right up on the perimeter of of that, that line between being in Christ and outside of Christ. How about your speech? How about your thought life? How about your checkbook? How about the places you go? How about the things that you look at? The websites that you visit? How about the things that you watch on television or DVDs? I don't want to get legalistic about this. But I really, I, I really am concerned that some of us are giving in to the old fleshly appetites and, and we are not divorcing ourselves from that old life. We need to separate ourselves from that. We need to be out of that. We need to not be gratifying the the desires of the sinful flesh. We we, we should not be engaged in fits of rage. If if you're a person who just off, just short fuse, off the cuff, yelling, screaming, I want to say to you, that's not the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I want to say to you, if, if, if you don't have kindness in your vocabulary of Christian lifestyle, The fruit of the Spirit is not being born in you. You should be growing in gentleness. You should be growing in patience. You should be more patient today than you were yesterday. And tomorrow you should be more patient 
then than you are today. I preach that sermon to myself, okay? Are you abiding in Christ? Are you holding fast to Him? Are you getting nearer and nearer to Christ? Are you casting your whole weight upon Him? As a branch, your job is to just hold to the vine, to Jesus, and draw life from Christ. Gather your strength from Him. And as we cling to Christ and He clings to us, our lives, as this branch and this vine come together, our lives are filled with energy and resources that are beyond our imagination. And He gives us overcoming power. And we don't produce the fruit. We can't. But we stay attached to the true vine and He produces His fruit in us. So that for you and me as a Christian, Christ is our life. Christ is our source. Christ is the vine and we are the branch. And we activate this fruit bearing as we admit our helplessness and we surrender our wills and we abide in Him. And if you are one of Jesus' people, you need not be afraid. You need not be impatient or erratic or become like a loose cannon toward that person in your life who really bugs you. For you have been given the spirit of Christ. You've been given the spirit of self-control that comes through the Holy Spirit. Your job is to activate it. How do I activate it? I activate it by admitting my helplessness, by surrendering my will, and by abiding in Him. And as I admit, surrender, and abide, admit, surrender, abide, admit, surrender, abide, it's a lifelong process. He shapes and molds me so that I look fruitful, not the old fruit, the new fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I urge you today, followers of Christ, I urge you in the name of Jesus that one of the most incredible and I think underappreciated fruit in this list that Paul gives to us here is the one of self-control. I urge you to look for the fruit of self-control in our lives. And as we admit, surrender, and abide, let this fruit be born in your life. Would you stand together and let's pray in closing. Lord God, we come to you today in complete humility. Some of us, Lord, are terribly embarrassed by the lack of control in our life. Our inability to say no to the sinful flesh. So today in humility, Lord, we admit to you our absolute sense of helplessness. 
for we have no other place to turn but to you. We surrender our wills to you at this very moment. And we want to tell you, Lord, that we desire to abide in you and have you abide in us. We are merely a branch. And we want to remain connected to you. By faith, Lord, we accept the fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit who is in us. And we say, Spirit of God, we are completely yours. Help us to be emptied of ourselves and our striving and our self-efforts. And instead, be filled afresh with the Spirit of Christ. Lord Jesus, live your life through us. And make us more like you. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful gift of your Holy Spirit and the fruit that are attendant with this wonderful gift. We surrender ourselves fully to you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.